Ladies and gentlemen, we're smack bang in the outside of the universe for episode five of Doctor Who, The Flocks. And with me, as always, to discuss this episode of Who's Raven On, the Raven On Doctor Who subsection podcast recap thingy, is a man. Oh, I'm Natalie Bohensky. I should probably introduce myself. But here to join me is a man who, if he had to leave a message painted on the Great Wall of China, it would probably say, help, help, it's been almost seven years and I'm still being held hostage by my podcast host. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) I stuffed up the intro. It's Stuart Late. (laughs) Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Yes, I wouldn't assume you could travel in time if that wasn't a thing I already knew about you either. (laughs) Oh, we will get to, at least they acknowledged that. At least they acknowledged that in the script, you know, in the, anyway, look, let's get to it. We have a very special guest this week. I'm so excited. Joining us from London, the epicenter of Doctor Who. You know him from our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy podcast we did. And most of all, you know him from uh, multiple appearances on our James Bond podcast. Please welcome Tom Selinski. Hey. Hello. Round of applause. I'm so excited, Tom, because you are a Doctor Who person. I really am, yes, steeped yes. in this. Obviously, it's your cultural heritage, but you personally <laughs> are. Now, you've, haven't you you've written for Doctor Who? Is that right? Please correct my I've written my ignorance. big Finnish audio dramas. So we've done two for the first Doctor, one for the fifth Doctor, and we did a Winston Churchill story, which features a brief appearance by the 10th Doctor. So not all of these actors were, were sufficiently alive to come into the studio, <laughs> but it was uh, a particular thrill to meet and write for Peter Davison and uh, Sarah Sutton and Janet Fielding and co. That is so cool. Can people listen to these? Can they go to Big Finish? And- yes, absolutely. Right. A Kingdom of Lies by Robert Kahn and Tom Selinski. It's the That's the Peter Davison one. That is so uh, cool. So it, you know, it's, it's often said that critics are people who uh, can't do the job themselves. And while I think that's unfair and ridiculous, I think part of the deal you make with the world when you put a piece of art out into it is that people will respond to it, and that's fair enough. I uh, feel I, I can say, listen, if you, if you think I can't do any better, listen to Kingdom of Lies and judge for yourself. I'm not saying <laughs> it's a masterpiece go. by any means, but I will say that it ticks a few elementary storytelling boxes I think are going significantly unchecked of late (laughs) (laughs) in the TV version would you like to hear my uh, uh, assessment of the series so far yes absolutely let's start there we're five episodes in one more to go how are you feeling episode one I would summarize as what if Doctor Who but ADHD (laughs) (laughs) Uh, episode two what if everybody's backstory but all at once Uh, yes uh, episode three, what if Doctor Who, but only the hits? <laughs> uh, episode four, what if the haunting of Villa Diodati, but someone keeps switching channels? Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, and then the most recent one, what if Doctor Who, but I'm having a seizure? <laughs> D- does, that, does that mean you enjoyed the last one? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know what I watched. I mean, the whole thing has been completely bewildering and disorienting and one can only assume that that's the intention but it's not actually drama if you look at what's going on and i know we're kind of plunging right into it now and you've got your minute challenge and so on to, to go but uh, no, when was anyone do. when was anyone in jeopardy mm. like ever uh, in that whole five minutes i think for five seconds kate stewart was in danger of being blown up that's oh, yes. it the rest of it is just people waffling about universes <laughs> or 
running around the world achieving nothing or spending decades dismantling <laughs> units, which clearly could have been done in an afternoon. Yes. <laughs> no one we I, care about is in any jeopardy. No one we care about is under any psychological pressure. So as far as I can tell, this doesn't work as an adventure story and it doesn't work as prestige television. It's just lots of light and noise. The Doctor is possibly going to be touched by Swarm and his weird fingers that make people <laughs> dissolve. <laughs> Uh, uh, yes, which is lucky because she thought she was going to be murdered by her mum, uh, which yes. is, of course, uh, after she thought she'd been turned to stone, which mm. is, of course, uh, after she thought she'd been uh, annihilated by the flux, etc., etc. Because the other thing, one of the things that we were told that we could now look forward to, because this was going to be a six-episode story, is the return of cliffhangers. Yes. So there's this mechanism by which you have to get the central cast into significant jeopardy at the end of every episode. The cliffhangers just get dismissed every single week. Yes, uh, the, the they really do that. One, which looked like it was in the universe, turned out to just be a taxi service to deliver yeah. the characters yes. to their the, the, the next bit of plot. Uh, and so it is here, the Doctor being turned to stone, it should be like somebody, yeah. somebody slightly dismissively compared to, well, this is probably just going to be Han Solo frozen in carbonite. It isn't even that. Yeah, She just popped back into life again, now delivered conveniently to where the next bit of plot has to take place. They literally say on screen, and, and it's it's one of the things that I like about the characterization of the angels going forward is that they're kind of dicks. They're just really, <laughs> really shitty, awful people. Um, but that that covers up their motivation here, which was they didn't have to turn her into an angel. They just did it for shits and giggles. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh, my goodness. But also they have this weird whispering habit. I, I don't know what I thought the angels would sound like, but I didn't think it would be, oh, hey, Doctor. Um, yeah, we brought you here because you, we don't like you and you're going to be... It's this weird, whispery, childish... It, I found it very disconcerting, which maybe was the point, but I just thought angels would be more sonorous or uh, not sound like teenage girls. Yeah, where's Gabriel Wolf when you need him? I don't know who that is. With the voice of Sutek. I don't know who that is. Uh, oh, Natalie. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm showing my ignorance. It's two against one. I am outnumbered here. He was, he was recast as the voice of that sort of strange devil creature of the Impossible Planet, which you might remember. Oh, mm. yes, the big beast thing. Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. So I was going to invite you, Tom, to kind of summarise this episode, but I, I feel like you've already given us a fairly good rundown. <laughs> you've given us a very good runway. <laughs> but is there is there anything else that you saw as like the through line or the main plot in inverted commas? <laughs> it's not. There are two things I would have expected from episode five. One is that it's just kind of putting all the chess pieces in place hmm. and holding stuff back for episode six, which would have been a bit disappointing. And the, the, the other is episode five is where you really ramp everything up because you know you've got an ace left to play in episode six. Actually, well, this is one of the things we did in, in our fifth Doctor story. It's a bit of advice that my friend's script editor and podcast co-host John Dorney gave me, which is if you think your, your story is a little bit thin, Take what you plan to do in four episodes, compress that into three episodes, and then your episode three cliffhanger is the bit that tells you that everything is not at all what it seemed, and that gives you enough material then for a, a brand new episode four. Right. Uh, but this whole episode was just marking time. It, it was. It's, it's a classic. Yeah, it's a classic yeah. table setting episode, but in in the worst possible way. <laughs> I mean, for me, all I could summarize it is the Doctor finds out she's going to be taken outside the universe to go back to division so the universe is going to be exploded that's yeah, all I, mean, I could come up with 
Can we... Bye bye universe. Now we actually have a tech tone that we can interrogate. Can we just see if we can no, tell you what? Can either of you explain to me? <laughs> <laughs> What actually her motivations are at any point in that backstory from finding the Doctor as a baby to now? She um, had a hat and... (laughs) um, uh, All the best character motivations come from hats. Good hat work. Gardening gloves. She sort of had this gardening kind of thing. Which I quite liked. um, When when she was mysterious and we didn't know who she was, I quite liked that idea of like a cosmic gardener who was very annoyed. It was like treating the doctor like, you know, like like an aphid or something. Well, she does call her a virus in this episode. Mm. So, which is, you know, timely. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I'm trying to answer Tom's questions to you, seriously. Um, So she has a hat and she wants to create order in the universe to... What does that mean? What does that look like? She had Mm. a speech where she talked about, you know, how they recruited, Division recruited all people because time, as the Gallifreyans' ability to time travel grew, they needed to maintain order. Oh, Prime Directive. There was a Star Trek reference in there somewhere. (laughs) She talks about how, oh, no, some civilizations need help and some need to be told what to do. And the doctor's like, in contravention of the something something, which I heard as the Prime Directive. That's, that's all I heard. And I went, that sounds very Star Trek-y, as much as as I know of Star Trek, which is not that much. So, yeah, maybe it was to properly nourish and grow the universe and it's Why? turned out to be a bit of a dud. So she's moving on. She's tearing out that garden, installing in some new soil, going to Bunnings, getting some nice <laughs> new plants. <laughs> getting some blood and bone, some yeah, sea get, salt. Oh, you need your blood and bone. Yeah. That's that's Tom. I think, I think I've answered your questions. <laughs> I don't. So I she, don't know what to say apart from that. Yeah, she she finds the Doctor as a baby. She uses the Doctor to found Time Lord Society. Time Lord Society then sort of splits. So we have the Division, whose job is to, as you say, do stuff. Which <laughs> is not clear to what end. Cosmic or who benefits police. from this. Cosmic and then cops. she decides what what I need now. I've got my perfect universe. Is just to loose the Doctor into it, like for eons. How long was the Doctor trapped inside that time confession dial, dial thing? And yeah, confession dial. I mean, that that was wasn't like wasn't like ten thousand years or something. Uh, so, something more more like like three billion years or something ridiculous. So the, the Doctor's been out of the universe forever, and presumably could have been recalled by the Weepy Angels whenever she wanted. But she waits until the universe is so fucked that she's got no. <laughs> except to reboot it and start over then recalls her in order to tell her this <laughs> because why but the uh, doctor and, has been and, out and about and, being hopeful and cheery and she doesn't like that but it's it's all right because now she's dusted so if she had any more exposition to dump it dies with her yeah that was very um uh, unsatisfying in the sense that there's not a lot more that the doctor will be it, it, it's that whole thing of quickly we've got to keep some mystery happening so kill off anybody who can give answers <laughs> yes but, but this but, is the thing that's the, been driving me crazy about this whole series, that mystery and confusion are not the same thing. Mm. We can be entranced by a mystery if we have a situation where we understand a lot and there's a significant thing that we don't understand. And we want to know what is the reason for that? What's the answer to mm. that? Clearly a well-defined question. But this is all just gibberish. When nothing makes any sense at all, it's very difficult to be curious about anything. 
Absolutely. And it's may it's compounded by the fact that, uh, as you say, like there's a mystery in the sense that we don't know who Swarm or Azure are, but- Don't, like, don't the, we? Aren't they the Ravagers? Isn't that well, all they are? Sure. But, but what does that mean? Who is Who are they? And how do they relate to Tecteun? Like she, and she says in this episode that she freed them. Why? No, she, like, she imprisoned them. I think did, that's what I got from it because that whole backstory that Swarm and Azure were separated and then put into different prisons- a bit like Quantum and Spectre. We've got these sort of Russian dolls <laughs> yes. of super powerful organizations. So when they were first created, the Time Lords were the super powerful organizations controlling everything. And then in The Deadly Assassin, we learned that the Time Lords have a dirty tricks organization called, and this is a very bad joke, the Celestial Intervention Agency. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Or CIA. CIA. Uh, so uh, now it turns out that uh, they're merely puppets for the Division. And now it turns out that Swarm and Azure are even more powerful than the Division. And, and it's just... Just stop. Mm. Just no. Just enough. <laughs> and especially because, like, Swarm and Azure, from what I can tell, want to destroy the universe. But isn't that what is happening with Tecteun as well? So they kind yes. of want the same thing. The Tecteun has unleashed the flux, which, uh, as I've noticed right. in the past, turned out not to be nearly as universe-ending <laughs> no. as advertised at the end of episode one. Yes. Uh, but it's all right, because she has a backup flux. Uh, that she can now switch well, some, on. Sometimes you've got a double flux, you know? <laughs> uh, and if that doesn't on, work, you go and fill a, big, fill a big pot of water from the kitchen and take that in with you. <laughs> yes, it, it very much is It's very hard to kind of... To make the call that you've got a universe-ending event destroyer of worlds planet eating event and then it just happens to be you know uber for the doctor or something it's like yeah you kind of wasted that opportunity but also can anything i I sort of wonder if so many doctor who things of the modern era and i don't know the old era well enough to know if this is standard who but so many end up being the earth is going to be destroyed. The universe, there's, the earth has been to- transferred into a totally different galaxy. And so mm. I guess where do you go? You have to keep upping things to now we've got the doctor outside of the universe or outside of the galaxies or I don't know. I feel like we need to call in some physicists to see if that's actually possible. But the stories that have the biggest impact, I think, aren't the ones that deal with universe-ending jeopardies. They're the ones that go into who these people are that we care yes. about. Yes, you know, and the, the, the stories that I think back on are ones like Father's Day, which is all about mm. who Rose is, or The Girl Who Waited, which is all about who Amy is, and wouldn't work if you swap those characters out. But uh, it's it's really shocking to me how because uh, we haven't really talked about. Yaz and Dan and Professor Jericho. But Jericho is unrecognisable in this episode compared to last week. He's Mm. just a a placeholder here, whereas last week he seemed like he had interiority and agency and he was a person who believed in things and could do things. Here he's just trailing around after Yaz, achieving nothing. Nothing Uh, they do in this episode has any impact on anything at all (laughs) until three quarters way through the episode, Dan remembers that he is from (laughs) Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) And then they make a joke about how he always talks about how he's from Liverpool. Look at how much shoe leather has been expended in order to make this happen. But what has happened at the end of it is that we have Joseph Williamson from, I think, about 1830. Mm. Yes. Meeting Dan from 2021. (laughs) In 1904. 1904. 
That is in my minute challenges. So was he actually dead or just happened to be walking around in time tunnels forever? Uh, Chris Tibble's writing MO just seems to be, this person needs to be in this place and time Mm. at this point in the story to make it work. So now they are. (laughs) Yeah. And you can almost you can almost do a lot of the episodes work for it and say, okay, there's something weird about the tunnels plus the flux means timey wimey, like there's you know, he's he's displaced in time or whatever, but you you have to do the episodes work for you for it. Like like it's not telling you what's going on. And if Dan and Yaz are just in some past time talking about Liverpool and Dan starts telling Yaz the story about the Joseph Williamson tunnels and then they decide to go back to Liverpool, you've lost nothing. Mm. You've got exactly the same point, but uh, but everything makes sense. Chris Chibble seems to believe that if you seed something arbitrary early on and then feed it back into the story later, something Nat, that you, know, you and I will be very familiar with from our impro training, mm. that there'll be a sort of cathartic pop in the mind of the people watching that, oh, that and that are part of the same story. How exciting. Mm. But all you're doing is juxtaposing you're not actually taking a narrative and pushing it into the future no you're just sort of going wouldn't it be cool if these mixed so let's just have them do that (laughs) (laughs) for me the most frustrating thing about that character about the i i always forget his name even though he was a real person (laughs) he's a real historical person and genuinely dug those tunnels for reasons which are still not clear yeah i mean like it's such a cool little bit of lore total doctor who thing and it's just being kind of wasted in this thing but anyway every time he shows up he's been talking in riddles just talking in crazy stupid riddles and then this time around yaz says oh she basically talks in a riddle to him because it was i barely understood what she was saying and then he goes finally and it's like (laughs) finally what how is this interaction different from any other interaction well, you've had with these exact characters in the previous episodes? Especially since he just walked into their stateroom on the Titanic exactly. or whatever. That it wasn't the Titanic. I'm just it just was a. Four. It, it, it looked a, enough like the Titanic that I was worried it was going to be the Titanic. <laughs> I know, that's, that's what I, when I first saw it, I went, "Uh oh, steamship with four um, funnels." Uh, no way, it's slightly different coloring. Okay, I think we're good. It's still yeah. 1904. The Titanic hasn't been built yet. All right, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have I have multiple points about their seafaring journey right. <laughs> to raise in my minute challenge or at some point in the podcast. But, yeah, he just walks into their room, which is very convenient. So all of a sudden, and it hasn't been set up, I don't think, in any previous episode that his tunnels can lead him like Narnia into other places. It's, it's set up in this in this episode by that scene. <laughs> That, that is the first time that we find out that, oh, there's doors that lead to other places. Great. Okay. Good information it, to have. Wouldn't it have been easier to follow him on the boat and then it turns out they've just left the boat and gone, oh, my God. Yes. We've got a portal. He's come through a portal. We followed But they him had back to have a pointless diversion to the mountains of Tibet or something? I'm that not was, sure where exactly they went. That was beforehand. Okay. Right. It was Nepal or Tibet. Was it? And, yeah, it was. Because it was on the way back after sending the message, I think, that they had I'm that. I'm stuck in my own series of confusing I, tunnels with this episode. <laughs> I might also be confused now, but I have I have issues. And all of boat. this would be easier to take if the story had taught us so far mm. that it was willing to answer all these questions it was raising. But great big plot things just get abandoned. Even comparing this episode to last episode. Last episode, when we left Yaz and Dan and Professor Jericho, they were with a little girl trapped in a village that was completely sealed off from the rest of the universe. Yes. 
Does anyone think we're going to re- be revisiting that element of the story? You're at so any point? right. Or is it going to be filed along with the Santarans have been where Russia is for like 200 years and nobody's noticed? Yes. And the, the little girl, there's a mention in this about unit turning that village into a military um, but then I might have been confused with the dates because that might have been after. There are a lot of confusing dates in this episode as well. There are yeah. so it jumps back and forth with the whole storyline with the Grand Serpent, and we'll get to him. Do you, do you know about unit dating, Natalie? Oh, I was I was going to say, surely, <laughs> surely you have some thoughts about this. Do I know do you, anything? Yeah. About what? So in the nineteen late nineteen sixties and then early nineteen seventies, for budget reasons, the Doctor was exiled to Earth and made to be unit scientific advisor. <laughs> Oh, I can't get back. Oh, no. The the implication was that these stories were being set some number of years in the future. Uh, So, for example, the the, the British had a a fairly advanced space exploration centre going on. Mm. But it was never made wholly explicit, and it was a little bit difficult to match up the dates. The one time it was made explicit is in the Pyramids of Mars, also previously mentioned, made in, I think, 1976, when Sarah Jane Smith says she's from 1980. Yes. Oh. In a 1980s story called Mordrin Undead, the Doctor reunites with the Brigadier in 1983, at which point uh, he is retired and teaching maths at a British boarding school. But the story then flashes back to 1977, when he's just retired from unit. So if he's just retired from unit in 77 and Pyramids of Mars is set in 1980, we have a pretty impossible conundrum to solve. So people have been trying to make all this work ever since. And so having the Brigadier in this story be a corporal, which itself oh. is bizarre because he would be officer class. That's a, that's yes. a, um, that's a, an enlisted rank. He would have started as a second lieutenant. Uh, be a corporal in 1976 just makes everything <laughs> even more impossible to sort out. And funny enough, when we got The Timer's Child two years ago, I was making jokes about this, that, oh God, what bit of Doctor Who lore is Chris Trimble going to try and tackle next? Will it be the, the unit dating debacle? Yes, Doctor, every calendar you thought you knew is wrong. Uh, oh, fucking hell, here it is. Here it is. This is actually, I think, his inept attempt to Make come right. to some sort of resolution about the unit dating controversy. He's just made it worse. Well, Corporal yeah. corporal is like a lower rank, isn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure of the exact ranks as you yes, say. Yes, he would be extremely, it's a it's a, a non-commissioned officer class. So so he it would be unlikely for him to rise from Corporal to what we, we first meet him as a, as a colonel and then he becomes the brigadier. It's it's very unlikely that he would he would start out as a corporal. He would start out as a as a lieutenant yes. and go up from there. This is my lack of understanding of how military ranks work. Yes. <laughs> but, but but again, it's it's one of those things where I'm sure Chibnall just didn't look it up. He just knows that corporal is below. Uh, yes, it sounds know, like colonel. he's the new guy. That's that's or, what or I maybe took he it meant colonel. Maybe he meant colonel, and it like auto corrected, and he never changed it back. <laughs> God, I don't know which is worse. It's, it's either is possible. <laughs> I do, I because for me, not knowing that, I just took it as, oh, here's the little, hey, look, we're referencing the Brigadier because he's dead now, so we can't show him, but we can have <laughs> someone do a rough voice in the background. I would not have known if it was the Brigadier if I hadn't been watching with subtitles on that said Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart on the phone off screen. Mm. Like it actually said that in the subtitles. And then it they said, said Brigadier? Oh, in the subtitles, yes. Well, I mean, that's incorrect. He's a corporal. Yeah, Brigadier. I'm going to have to go back and check. It's not his first name. Well, maybe it said Lethbridge Stewart or something, but it it flicked before me as I was watching. And then 
due to the context clues of, oh, he's a bit of a shouter, but he, he'll come good. I went, oh, that must be the reference to the Brigadier that they're doing that whole, oh, isn't it nice? We're referencing this beloved character. Which wouldn't be bad if they didn't make such a ham fist of it. Like, <laughs> For a second I thought that they'd recast the Brigadier when, when What's-His-Face is... No, that, um... would be, that would be uh, blasphemy. Yeah. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, not the Big Finish. wouldn't recast but, uh... the Brig. Oh, Big Finish have recast him, have they? Yeah, they've got John Coleshaw doing the Brigadier now. Ah, well, that's good if it's like a vocal tribute. Yeah. But I suppose that's why they brought in the, is it his daughter or his granddaughter, Kate Stewart? His daughter. His daughter, who's like strong and <laughs> fierce and somehow knows everything already about Doc Cotton. Without having four years just doing nothing. Mm. Four years? Yeah, because in 2017, her front door blows up. And in 2021, oh. he lets the Santarans in. So what was he doing for four years? Or what was she doing for four years? Oh, yeah. Mm. Why didn't they just make that the same day? They needed to bring it up to the present. The dates in this episode just it really <laughs> confuse me. And it can't all happen in the present because Chris Chibnall hilariously disbanded Unit in 2017 to do an EU joke. And there are some people going, oh, look, this was his plan all along. No, this is clearly desperate improvisation to try yeah. and ram a square peg into a round hole. Oh, so that I forgot that unit got disbanded. So they've retconned the Doc Cotton stuff into off that screen disbanding. as a joke. Oh, off screen as a joke. And now he's going, yeah, 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 we'll make it. Sorry, it's, I mean, you've got to admire the bravoso. Is that the right word? The, bra- <laughs> the, bra- the, bra- the braggadoso? No, the bravado? Kutzpa? The balls? I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure how to, yeah, I, this is the thing. Because I don't know. To me, a lot of it's confusing because I'm like, why are they jumping so far behind? All I know is that I just love Craig Parkinson doing evil. Like I told Stu when he first turned up, I'm like, he's Doc Cotton from Line of Duty. He's clearly going to be the bad guy. Then obviously he was confirmed <laughs> sure. as having the name The Great Serpent. So clearly <laughs> like, hmm. you don't tend Feels to. Feels like a bad guy. Once again, snakes, bad press. But <laughs> yeah, this but time he's just. He's set up in the previous episode as this sort of great ruler with armies at his command and has now been retconned within a couple of episodes into this sort of one-man army. Yes. It's, it's. I sort of read into that that the Flux just got rid of everybody and he survived the Flux and now he's been cast back to try and do a deal with the Sontarans via unit something. But also the time, like, does he, he can travel in time? They're not saying whether or not, they intimated that he could travel in time, but I thought it was just that he was, like, extremely long-lived. But but no, it's it's time travel, isn't it? Like, he's he's using time travel to, to yeah, jump I mean, between the... Does it matter? No. I mean, it, <laughs> ultimately, no, but it just, it's like a splinter in my brain when I think about it. Well, Stu, should we run through? I'm a lot of what we've already talked about is in my minute challenge, but I'm <laughs> sure. sure it will be too. But let's let's go through the process and get Tom's um, sage take on all of these things. Do you want to go first? Because I think I went first last week, Stu. So yes, okay. Well, I, I had a series of questions about this episode, <laughs> uh, some of which I managed to scroll down in our in our sixty allotted seconds. Yeah, we probably um, so needed the, like a five minute. Challenge. I, I needed about five minutes to sort of get my head around all this, but but uh, so what I got down was um. And, and the, the, so the, the the big question that I had, and I feel like it's it's kind of it's almost the skeleton key for unlocking like everything that's wrong with this episode, which is how did that hermit know about dog aliens in the future? No, he. Okay, so f- hilariously, the first thing on my list was comedy hermit. Uh, well, um, sure. 
I felt like he was the MVP. I mean, you know, he's like the actor's doing a doing a lot of heavy lifting. Like he's <laughs> he's making that role his own, and I, I liked him a lot. I thought he was great. But I've... the the idea is like that is he getting like a psychic projection? And if so, from who? He doesn't the know, doctor? but he he says that he says fetch your dog. That's all I know. Sure, but it's where does that come interpret. from? He he's delivering a piece of plot information to our characters, but how did he? get that information he's not set up as like some he's just some guy is my point and i'm like <laughs> i don't understand how he knows about dog aliens in his future i don't get that he doesn't call them aliens though he just says fetch your dog fetch your dog yeah sure i mean look it's just it's it's, it's one of those things where i as it was happening i'm just like wait a minute how does how does he know how do they know about him they don't they just blow past how they know to go to him and I don't know what's more maddening, that none of that is explained. <laughs> or and, that it ends up not meaning anything. Or that it, exactly. That, would, it, would it be better or worse if the entire plot hinged on that? <laughs> because what actually happens is it's just disregarded. Sure. Yeah. And, and they, go, have, they go to and China in what I think was a pretty tumultuous time in Chinese history, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, do that's... You, do we... Can I get into this now? Because are we, are we, did I did I touch on like a, a deep vein here, Natalie? You, what are we? You touched on a mega deep vein that I because wasn't wasn't the Boxer Rebellion around this time or I want to say like 1900 was Boxer Rebellion or 1901, but yes, sure. like early. You know, you've got the conflict with Japan. So okay, I actually did a bit of research. Right. <laughs> I'm interrupting the minute challenge because I feel strongly I need to just get this out before. I... So they go see the hermit in Nepal, I think, or Tibet. But they're, but they're cl- Nepal is on the border of China and Tibet. It's close to China. It shares a border with China. Right. And so when they leave to go and, and Yaz says, I've got an idea how we can tell the dog, fetch the dog. Now, I assume they decided to go to the Great Wall because you can see it from space. Mm. I yes. Assume. Okay. I'm sure that's what that was. But then they don't seem to write much on the wall itself. They seem to write on the land either side. That's a whole different issue. We can talk about that later. My main issue is the transport. (laughs) So they, and Stu always says to me, he likes where my brain is. I was just about to make the comment, yeah. I I love where you draw the line. So so they then have a montage of them on a boat looking at Oh, that was hilarious. Hilarious. I felt like it was a parody. Like if I was writing a sketch about people trying to find their way somewhere, that's the kind of editing that I would say, do that, do that. At one point he looks frustrated and throws a map to the floor. (laughs) Yes. And they have- (laughs) Meanwhile, a red dotted Indiana Jones line crosses over a map. Yes, that's, it was great. But then I actually, at the end of the episode, I went back and looked at that again, trying to figure out. So it looks like they went from Nepal or wherever, I think it was Nepal, to India to then take a ship, possibly the same ship that they had already gone on, around to China. So if you look at a map, probably the place they would have left is Calcutta or Kolkata, Mm -hmm. as it's now known, which means they would have gone down past Myanmar, Thailand, down Malaysia, Singapore, and then gone up and around Vietnam and South China Sea and to, let's say, let's say Shanghai, to be generous, because the Great Wall is up the, in is the north of China. Famously in the north of China. <laughs> famously kind of t- tutting around below Mongolia. That's kind yes. of, you know, think of it like a bit of a smile at the top of China there. So I Googled as best as I could to find out that the port of Shanghai to the port of Calcutta, Kolkata, is 4,665 nautical miles, 
which at 10 knots <laughs> is 19.4 days at sea. That's what a ports.com survey did for me. Now, I don't, I, I'm figuring a steamship going 10 knots mm. in 1904, that's probably like the Titanic, I think, was hitting 20 at its fastest. So let's say, you know, 10 knots is fairly standard. So you're talking 20 days at sea to do that. But they were in Nepal, which shares a border with China. And famously, there's a Silk Road that goes all through that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it have been quicker if they're going to the Great Wall to go to the furthest edge of the wall? So not all the fancy stuff closer to Beijing, but to go up through the land. And it probably would have taken them half the time on like the Silk Road going by camel or something. A fine suggestion requiring a rudimentary amount of research, which was more than I mean, I would say Chris Chibnall did. Maybe the ship was faster. Maybe that's rough terrain. You're going through Tibet. You're right. It's a hard time in China, but they've just trekked up freaking Nepal in 1904. <laughs> it seems within their purview. Like it seems like the kind of thing they could have done is sort of head up, you know, through the, I can never tell my east from my west, through the western edge of China. Like guys, go by land. Why do they have to go by sea? Just so they can have them in the ship's cabin again, (laughs) throwing papers to the floor. None of this would have mattered. It wouldn't even have mattered that none of this moves the plot in any meaningful way at all Mm. if there'd been any character work. Because the idea that you've got these three people who have very different levels of experience with a doctor... You know, Yaz, who by now is a fairly mm. experienced traveller, Dan, who's yes. just getting used to the idea that this kind of stuff exists, and Professor Jericho, for whom this is all brand new. So yes. they should have very differing reactions to suddenly being stranded in the past, different amounts of the past as well. Jericho's from 67 and Yaz and Dan are from 2021. So it's different for them being taken back to 1901. But they all just trot about. Mm. And at one point, when Yaz is telling them to dispose of the body, Jericho looks at her and says, you seem very sanguine about all of this or something like that, as if they've known each other for five minutes. They've been adventuring together for three years at this point. Three years is an arbitrary time period. Like, it's... it's It's far too long. It should be be like six months. And that is also kind of weird, the way that they had some guy kill himself and then... Like, who was he representing? He was a snake guy. He was a snake guy. Yeah, yeah which uh, it may mean oh. he's, he's something to do with Craig Parkinson, but oh, who cares? But it's not linked back <laughs> at all. He's he's literally like you know um, a Bond villain, just uh, or a guy coming in like, "Hello, I'm serving you to tea. I'm here to serve you tea. You're clearly a henchman." It, it was a weirdly Bondian it, moment in in what was his... supposed to be like a, a Indiana Jones pastiche. <laughs> And they disposed of his his body so coldly. Like, yes, it's just like, we'll throw him overboard. Excuse my <laughs> excuse my attempt at the accent, Tom. I just I just love that. I did I think what they were attempting to do for character development for Yaz, just on your point, Tom, is they really turned her into a kind of Mary Poppinsy, who am I thinking? Um, Nellie Bly, those kinds of uh, women. Lara Croft? Uh, maybe Lara Croft, but I'm thinking 100 years ago when you had all these kind of perky female A plucky reporters. female Victorian adventurer. Yeah. Again, imagine, what, imagine what a writer who's interested in people would make of this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? If you've become so fixated on following this task that the Doctor has set you, you've got this what would the Doctor do mm. mnemonic on your hand. Yeah. You can see that this is starting to turn someone into a psychopath. You know, there's something really dark and exciting and interesting about this. But all we get is hijinks and comedy hermits. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and that Rangers actually... That, that br- lost plot arc. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 
I'm sorry for interrupting your list, Stu. I just really wanted to get the travel thing. No, was- no, 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 no. That that brings that brings me quite neatly to my uh, second question on my list, which was how many times has Yaz play acted with that hologram? <laughs> I um, forgot because, about that hologram. Because again, wow. it's one of those things. Like they've been at this for three years, so presumably this is not the first time she's watched and creepily interacted with a hologram that does not like that the episode makes explicit because the Doctor breaks character at least twice. You know, it's just this bizarre like it's it's good in theory that the episode is taking a moment to just sit down but it's almost like it's ticking off a box where it's like okay so this is the part where the companion has a moment and yes they've sketched out a bizarre little little vignette and, she's and doing then it. it's she's doing it while her two other companions are throwing, are throwing a dead body over over the side of a boat <laughs> because this is a children's show <laughs> <sighs> the, the mission that she set them on is weird as well. This is another thing that made me think this was going to be all about unit because she says now that the flux has destroyed all these planets, which maybe it has, maybe it hasn't, you know, it's hard to keep up sometimes. A lot of alien races which have been displaced are going to be coming for Earth and you mm. have to stop them, which, by the way, is a bit of rather unwanted anti-refugee rhetoric, if you ask uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. But oh, my God. Yeah, that's right. So I thought that might be some, you know, moving towards some kind of explanation about why when John Pertwee was exiled on Earth, Earth got invaded every second Wednesday. Yes. But they're in oh, it's the 23rd time for an invasion. <laughs> 1901, 1902, 1903, 1904. And as far as I can tell, in that whole time, no, the Earth isn't invaded. Mm. But also, isn't the flux happening in 2021? Yes. Yeah. So why does the flux happening in 2021 mean that Yaz and Dan need to be looking out for where the Earth is vulnerable 120 years earlier? These are more <laughs> unclear explanations that don't actually explain anything and aren't very interesting Yeah. Mm. because they don't affect anyone. They don't engage the viewer. It, it was very much a, oh, we need to show that they've been hanging around doing stuff adventures for a little while but we don't want to have them it be too long because you know we don't want to age them up obviously so it needs to be something that's believable so yeah three years but also they gallivant a lot again just back to the travel you know if they're spending 20 steamship travel was not that fast they get from mexico (laughs) to nepal these these take time, and it all happens. And money. In they got a lot of money from somewhere. Where have they got they that travel from? at the they travel yeah. at the speed of montage. Yes, <laughs> yes. Who have they robbed or murdered? Yes. In the <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> maybe I don't know. Maybe uh, you know Dan knows so much about Liverpool. Maybe he knows the winners of horse races dating back to nineteen oh four, and he goes and puts a few bob on, and that's what I'd be doing. <laughs> it's not a very satisfactory explanation, is it? No, but it's the best one we have. <laughs> Ah, uh, Stu, continue uh, with your list. The, the next item on my list, we, we've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I, I just sort of wrote down, what was Kate's plan after confronting that snake guy? <laughs> like, she's so in there weird. and she's like, I know who you are and uh, now I'm you. going to sit on this knowledge for the next four years. But also, what? I'm going to I'm gonna walk out of here with you knowing that I know you're a bad guy. Yeah. And I'm just going to tell you everything. I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's sensible. We've seen, this, like, we've seen this before in this series. I remember even as far back as Rosa, the, the doctor walks up to Space Fonz, I can't remember his actual name, uh, and says, <laughs> uh, I know what you're doing and you'd better not, and then just walks away. Yeah. Like she turns her back and puts her hands over her eyes and counts to 10 in order yeah. to give him a fair shot at putting his plan into action. I mean, it's just... 
It's asinine. It's just it's just yeah. terrible writing. And Tom, you, you you might have a better grasp on this than me, but I mean, so Kate is the director of Unit, right? Like, like, and, and I assume so. Snake Guy is her boss somehow. Is that how that works? Well, he's in the government who oversees the task force because apparently it's still just a task force. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. I, I guess so. So she she's in charge of Unit, but she answers to him. I mean, it's a a running thing in. 70s Doctor Who that there are authority figures and bureaucrats knocking around uh, and occasionally the brigadier has to go and report back to Geneva and so on so yeah they'd be they'd be they have paymasters to whom they're answerable sure Uh, but But, I mean um, like couldn't I mean surely they still have that alien detector don't they (laughs) (laughs) like can't she just go I you're expecting something introduced early in the story (laughs) yes uh, to to pay off uh, later have have meaning later (laughs) Yes. That's not how this works at all. Chekhov's alien detector, you know. <laughs> um, so what, just... what, what we do in these stories is we introduce something earlier and then we just bring it back in randomly later and so you recognise it. <laughs> well, Things just... that actually pay off, they just reoccur. Yes. Or we just bring in a scene to go, hey, this is how it is now. Yeah, exactly. So, and then and then four years after this bizarre confrontation where I assume like Kate has just retired or something, like she's living her life in, in the full knowledge that like an alien has infiltrated a fairly high rank of government. Um, she's just like, whatever, I'm sure nothing will come of that. <laughs> and then like one day she gets like her house gets bombed and she's like, Osgood, I need to go die. <laughs> and breaks the phone. What are you talking? What Kate, have you had a hen? Have you had a hen injury? Like, I think you're concussed from the explosion. What are you talking about? Going dark, for God's sake. It really annoyed I don't know why that annoyed me so much, but I was just like, this this is stupid, (laughs) stupid writing. Uh, Tom, I I love it when Stu gets frustrated. Can we just talk briefly about the serpent as well? Because you know, there's, there's, we've talked oh, a lot about the fact that this it's is on all my sort minute of, challenge. Uh, sub yeah, Indiana so- Jones stuff, but uh, so he's called the Grand Serpent, and he has sure. snake tattoos, and he kills with a snake. I mean, it's bloody Batman. It's like <laughs> Mr. Freeze making ice puns. It's just dreadful. Well, I I had that in my minute challenge, and I thought that was actually quite scary. The way that it first came out of the first dead guy, it kind of like pushed its way out of his mouth with its multiple like fangy. It, it very much, it smacked me of two things. It was like the Demogorgon from Stranger Things mm. crossed with in his Dark Materials, which I haven't seen the second series of obviously, but the first series, one of the guys, his demon is a snake that kind of lives on his person. So to me it was like a mashup of that. But it didn't slither like a snake. It kind of hopped, sort of like threw itself forward. It was like this, ah, ah. Yeah, it was really weird and disconcerting for me. It, it like, was a pretty unsettling effect, yeah. It was unsettling, and that was the only thing I sort of went, I'll give them credit for this creepy effect. I mean, you're right, it's a bit on the nose that it's a snake for the snake, but I guess maybe... But is he, like, I, I'm not entirely... Again, it's one of those things where it's only sort of half-formed for me because I'm not exactly sure how it's meant to operate. Like, is he manifesting it inside the person, or do they have one in there already? Um, like, does it represent, like, some internal energy or is it, like, a physical thing that he's putting um, in? Like, Kate, I, Kate said something about she was wearing a psychic temporal shield. Yes. So, so it's he something couldn't... he can beam into people. Apparently. Right. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> sure. sure. I'll take it. <laughs> I can just hear Tom slowly sighing at the other end. 
but it's it's sort of like, like, like yeah. Do you, do you know the expression cargo cult? Yes, yes. Well, I, I've, you know I've seen them. I've seen the cargo cult in Vanuatu. So have I. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But that's what a lot of this is. It's like half-remembered bits and pieces or things that look a little bit like the thing they're supposed to be if you squint. Even things like when the Doctor is turned back into a human and is in that strange void of statues. And she goes up to them going, look, I'm blinking, I'm blinking. Does Chris Chibnall think that blinking brings statues to life? That's not how that works. Yeah. They are quantum locked when they are observed. There's nothing special about blinking. Blinking only means that you're briefly not observing them. Yes. And it, this is more of the same. This is a, a little bit like what would happen if a super powerful alien being infiltrated a government organization and had the power to kill, but not really. No, that's right. <laughs> they, they just very quietly make, a, make a, a bizarre deal with an alien race for which I'm not sure what they get out of it. Makes sense. <laughs> I think I said. Well, you... I think I said at the end of my review, this is fan fiction at best and yes. a Blue Peter competition-winning entry at worst. Ooh. Yes, this is. It's pretty bad. Like the the idea that all of this stuff is leading to something. It's like I I don't necessarily know that it is anymore, and I'm very worried about that. Well, we had a well, big don't discussion. Forget, there are three more specials to come. There are. Yes. So there is, is the it... possibility that episode six. Mm-hmm. It's going to end on a cliffhanger. On a cliffhanger. Yeah, we raised this issue last week and it's looking a bit more likely after today. Uh, Stu, was your list done or? Pretty much. I mean, the, the only thing, the last thing I had on my list was just, oh, it's the Sontarans. Sure. Yeah, like, what was that about? It's like, great. Okay. So, and it's, it, that's so weird because that, like, I, I'm on record. Like we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. I quite liked the, the Sontaran episode. I thought it was a very good use of them. I thought they're a good villain for that sort of story where they're a threat, but they're not like a world conquering threat. I feel like, like, you, you know, they're not Dalek or Cyberman level, but they're just sort of, they're like a good solid alien meanie race yeah. to be a bit of cannon fodder. And now it's like, oh no! Now they're now they're the big bad that everyone has to fight against. I'm like, nope, we've we've overplayed the hand here. That's that's <laughs> not. I was not expecting to see them again, other than a cameo, and the fact that they're apparently tied up quite intrinsically in the finale is baffling to me. And when did Grand Serpent get to meet the Sontarans and do a deal with them? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm I'm sure like he sent messages to them and or something like that's also, fine but whatever didn't the, like didn't like dan and uh, the dog crash their sh- through their ships or something in that second episode third episode again natalie you seem to be expecting things that happened in early episodes <laughs> <laughs> to continue to have meaning and relevance later episodes and this is mm. not how this story operates yeah i guess there was just more centaurans yeah. yeah, there's always there more Tarans. Maybe there was an escape pod. There usually is. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, a few things on my list, my minute challenge. My main one was the the transport issue. I brought up: Did the old dude just not die, or with the what's his name with the tunnels? Oh, what happened to Vinda? How did he get to wherever Swarm and Azure were? And he where was... was that exactly? <laughs> yeah. So first of all, he like... comes in on a beam of story logic. Um, I was was that a transmat beam? Was he dropped off by a passing? I, I, I guess it must have. We, we don't know, but it must have been. But it's played for dramatic irony because Bell was just about to land exactly where he was, and then she gets called away by Carvanista. So that's what that was supposed to be. Oh, so but she was honing in on him? No, she was honing in on the coordinates that she left for him. But how was he there? I don't know because because quite specifically, she she forgot to give him the coordinates in the last episode. Yes. So so who knows? 
So unclear. I thought she was on a mission to go find and save people. Yeah, she kept she's doing that too. Don't mess with me. I'm on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> okay, again, again, there are no good answers for these questions you have, Natalie. <laughs> All of this crumbles to ash as soon as you try to grab hold of it. But then he just sort of, he observes a bunch of people. Are they inside the passenger? So something about what Swarm and Azura are doing involves you dissolving people and using that energy to create a bridge to where Tecteun is. Oh, I see. That's what they're doing. Unclear why. I'm well, hope, it seems like, to be I revenge. hope with all my might that we get some sort of answer next week. It seemed to but, just be revenge, Stu. Yeah, basically. But yeah, sure. <laughs> that's a weird thing to hang the whole... Anyway, that's fine. But yeah, so that's what they were doing. So that's the, the real world. And then he gets caught immediately. <laughs> and he sort of says, yeah, I thought you probably would catch me quite quickly. And they do. And then they absorb him into a passenger where he meets Di. Oh, that's right. He met Die. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, he met Die, and they're both in the passenger. Being absorbed by a passenger up until just this episode has been played as something very bad that you don't want to happen to you. And yeah. yet in this episode, it's now presented as, well, that happened. Yeah, I. it was very much a case of, quickly, you need to put Vinda in here because he's not quite, we're not done with him yet, but let's then move him out of the way fairly quickly or put him at risk. <laughs> but as you say, Tom... I guess he's in peril, but you don't know because now the passenger doesn't seem to be that bad, maybe? Once again, what seems like a fatal death ray turns out to be a taxi service getting you to the next bit of plot. (laughs) It's Uber for plot. Um, (laughs) I mentioned a swarm on my list. I had his um, Doc Cotton with his, his snake. Uh, The comedy Hermit. Oh, I had Swarm and Azure, I think, are just out for revenge. That seems to be their plan. I also then had Bell and Carvanista teamed up and I was like, wasn't that the name of like a band that was named after a, or a French cartoon? And then I realized that was Bell and Sebastian, but still. I was going to say, are you thinking of Bell and Sebastian? Yeah, but still a Bell and a, a woman and a dog, it checks out. Um, should we spend some time then on Tectuan and the greater mythology of the timeless child, which we did talk a little do, bit about. Do we have to? And, <laughs> I mean, this is really just all recapping what we learned at the end of last season. Uh, Which I guess for me was good because I forgot a lot of that stuff. Whether intentionally, I don't know. But But as as, as we already explored, nothing that Tectean says or does makes any actual sense. And Hmm. we have this incredibly powerful individual at the head of this incredibly powerful secret organisation which has been influencing the flow of time within the universe and is capable of ending one universe and hopping to another, who's caught off guard when two skull creatures turn up and dust her. Hmm. Yes. If you think about, which I think you you guys also covered, uh, what happened in the the last episode of Loki, that's how to play an all-powerful being who can see the future. The really depressed... Bored. Yeah, yes, well, exactly. Well, and I know question, what you're going to what, do what, before you do yeah, it. Yeah, what would it be like if you'd been controlling the flow of time for thousands of years, millions of years? Absolutely. And that is, that, that's a great example, Tom, because it's one of those ones that shouldn't work because it's literally the evil villain sitting down for 20 minutes and explaining the plot to our heroes. But it works because the, the performance and the writing and everything is just working in sync, all in the, in the service of the same goal. And it just sings, it jumps off the screen. Whereas almost the exact same thing is happening in this episode. I'm just like, please don't do this. Please stop. <laughs> And again, it works not least 
in Loki because the writers are genuinely curious about yes. the characters and about how they would react when put in this situation. Whereas in this episode, the Doctor is just reduced to the role of companion, asking questions and getting cryptic answers. Mm. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, she's she's and there's an oot the there for some reason. Uh, yes. Well, they had the costume available. <laughs> I, I get it, it. It is a bit of a tour of greatest hits because in the coming next week episode, they had the Daleks and the Cybermen flash by again. So it's a, another you know tour around the the Doctor Who museum, big live interactive <laughs> exhibit where you can see the costumes. I forget whether this has come up on your podcast before, but it's well known that in 1986, Chris Chibnall went on BBC television oh, yes. to slag yes, off yes. Doctor Who, uh, which was then doing a story called Trial of a Time Lord. Uh, and I pointed out at the end of last season, the story he was slagging off featured, among other things, a surprise appearance by the master, mm -hmm. uh, the Doctor, watching Doctor Who, unable to take part in the action, secret details about the Doctor's life never before hinted at, <laughs> uh, a planet which turns out to be the remains of a devastated Earth, etc., etc., etc. So this year, what he decided to do, because he, he clearly hated Trial of a Time Lord, which was criticised by a lot of people for being a, an overly ambitious attempt to tell a single, nearly six-hour-plus story mm -hmm. after multiple episodes, delving into the details of the Doctor and the Time Lords in ways which left you know, a lot of non-hardcore fans completely baffled. To tell a six-hour story of multiple episodes <laughs> which delves into the details of the Doctor and the Time Lords <laughs> in a way which is determined to leave even hardcore fans completely baffled. <laughs> I mean... The, the dramatic irony is almost too sweet. It's absolutely extraordinary. And is he self-aware, do you think? like The fact that so many things keep coming up which seem like the opposite of what was intended. Like I didn't, I didn't clock this at the time, but a lot of commentators pointed out that when she removes the Master's sort of psychic disguise and weaponizes his dark skin against him, mm. that's Not great. pretty awful. I mean, that's, that's kind of ghastly. And the morality there clearly isn't something which Chris Chibnall thought about and decided, yes, that's what I want to put into my story. I don't think he's really aware of any of the... Well, when, he, when he stumbles across something with some deeper meaning, I don't think he's, he's aware of it. And it's, it's incomprehensible to me that he should have got this job and that his ability should fall so far short of his ambition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you get the sense of someone who is overstretched, who is doing his best and who has done some halfway decent episodes of the show under previous showrunners, but he was never the best episode. And also episode the Cyberwoman episode of Torchwood. <laughs> and also the Cyberwoman episode of Torchwood. But, you know, like he's had some halfway decent things. I mean, it reminds me of nothing else than Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, which is a fun episode that ends with the Doctor actively making the decision to murder a man. Yeah. And that kind of sums up Chris Chibnall's approach to writing this show. He he <laughs> does doctor. things for plot reasons. He has a lot of fun, flashy plot character stuff that doesn't go anywhere. And then at the end, the Doctor does something awful that basically unintentionally. And the other thing I, I think which is unforgivable, there's an interview, pair of interviews, I can't remember exactly where I saw this now, but there's a uh, an interview with Chibnall like before any of these episodes had aired where he said, once I'd cast someone as good as Jodie Whittaker... I knew I could step back and let her figure out who the Doctor was. Oh, no. And then Jodie Whittaker <laughs> says, once I knew Chris was writing the scripts, I knew all I had to do was play what was on the page. Oh, no. So that's why we have this bland any Doctor with no decision that anyone's made about what makes this incarnation different 
from previous ones. Mm. She's she's a placeholder. She's a decision that nobody has made. I, I can't wait for her to come back in the 60th anniversary special or whatever and to have someone else writing her. Yes. Well, that reminds me, actually, um, I'm not sure whether you you guys saw this, but they've got these little, it's actually been quite good in its way. On social media, the Doctor Who social media accounts have been posting all this behind the scenes stuff, which they haven't necessarily done uh, previously, like quite long 10, 15 minute explorations of the various episodes. And there was one for the for the episode, uh, episode three, where uh, jo- the Joe Martin Doctor showed up again. And it was really interesting watching especially like joe martin and jody whittaker but also like the fugitive doctor and the 13th doctor sort of interact and be around each other because i think her doctor jody's doctor snaps into focus when that other doctor is there Mm. that other doctor is there and and she is like more of a classic sort of stentorian authoritative you know confident person and Jodie's doctor is more of a chaotic bumbler you know which is fine there's nothing wrong with that certainly we've had versions of that in the past but you know great right to that if that's the case but it just seems like they never ever do when she's by herself it's like when she's with another doctor suddenly her doctor snaps into focus but if it's just her by herself she's just standing in for the doctor I was going to say, is it maybe something to do with her accent? But then Christopher Eccleston was from the north, and he yeah, he had a northern accent. He was able to sound authoritative. Peter Capaldi was Scottish. Like, I mean, there's very not... different. Stu, don't. Oh, Tom will get mad. It's very different. Very different. <laughs> very different regions. Don't. Don't. Ooh. I just mean, like, you know, the fact that the Doctor has an accent. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Exactly. It's not unusual. You mentioned a couple of episodes ago, Tom, in one of your reviews that there was a scene where Jodie Whittaker was playing another police officer beside Yaz, oh, yes. like mm. taken over her body, and you found that like a really engaging scene of Jodie Whittaker doing something. Yeah, she's sort of doing the um, pastiche Victoria Wood. That's right. So but she's... There's, suddenly there's some characterization there. Doctors past have tended to sort of, yeah, do that thing and come in and fill the part with their own personality. But in the first 20 years of the show, when you had so few previous incarnations to go on you know tom baker is obviously going to play it differently than john pertwee because they're such Mm. different performers especially after david tennant and matt smith yeah when jodie whittaker comes in and she's just sort of doing a a a little bit of tennant and a little bit of matt smith it's not enough and you've Mm. got to make a decision as i think capaldi and stephen moffat did with the 12th doctor about this is going to be something different this is going to be something which we haven't seen before you know, and, they, and have I, you heard I, Tom I, Baker talking about uh, how he decided uh, how to play the Doctor? No. No. It's one of my favourite interviews. He, he was interviewed, I think this is after he'd stopped doing it, but he said, uh, at first I had no idea how to do this. How do you play an alien who has secrets? How do you <laughs> convey that? And I thought, what I could do if I wanted to convey an alien who has secrets <laughs> is to be Tom Baker. <laughs> <laughs> what we we don't deserve Tom Baker, do we? Like... <laughs> I love that. Almost sounds All... like a bit like I had no idea, so I'm just going with me. <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> oh, so good. Oh, what what an absolute what an absolute all time great. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention is the chameleon circuit fob that came up again. 
Oh, yes. Because like the Weeping Angels, that, that was invented by Moffat, wasn't it? The Chameleon Circuit. For- uh, no, no uh, that's, uh, well, that's RTD. That, that goes back to the Return of the Master. And specifically, oh, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, oh, and uh, yeah, season three. Nature. But Human, yeah. human Nature, Family nature. of Blood, yeah. yeah. Wasn't, wasn't that a Stephen Moffat double feature? No, that was no, um, Paul, Paul Cornell. Cornell. Oh, sorry, my apologies. I apologize. Based on the New Adventures novel he wrote for The Seventh Doctor. Ah, well, uh, the idea then that here's Chibnall kind of going, I really like that thing that we've done previously and mm. like the Weeping Angels and going, how can we bring that back? Well, he used it for the Joe Martin Doctor. This is the thing. Like, they, they he did it again True. for Joe Martin's Doctor. And it's the, one of those things where I worry that he's broken the concept because the whole idea of the Chameleon Arch was that it completely fundamentally changes you and takes your Time Lord essence and stores it away and you become like human, essentially. Yes. Whereas it seems like the Doctor has just sort of had like a part of her siphoned off. It is a lobotomy yeah. in, a, in, in a fob. A phobotomy. A phobotomy. (laughs) It just made me think, though, is the Doctor then in a weird... Because if we're going with the fact that this is the same Doctor who was 10, who was in Family of Blood and Human Nature, so when the Doctor disguised as, as 10 and he disguised his personality, he was already disguised by this chameleon circuit that Tektuan has. So are we talking like an Inception of chameleon yes, exactly. It just raises oh more God. questions. <laughs> I, do, I, I haven't even seen Inception, but as I understand, it's thing within a thing within a thing. So I was just going, how does that chameleon circuit work if it's, yeah. Were they about to unleash the fob at the Doctor in the end of this episode or was that in the coming next week? I can't remember. It was It was in the next time trailer. Right. They, they show the thing opening up. So I guess, spoiler alert, that's going to happen. Maybe the Doctor is the master all along. Maybe that's like they did with Derek Jacobi, you know. Maybe maybe the Doctor's been the master all this time. The, the, the Doctor gets to live all of her lives as the Doctor and then she goes back around to do, do it a second time as the master. Yeah, but then maybe we could get <laughs> Sasha Dewan being the Doctor. That would be cool. Sure. He's pretty great. Have we still got Tom? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I'm just- <laughs> You it's, remind- it's funny, you know, there's plenty of episodes of the series that I've liked more than others, you know, and uh, when I was growing up watching it in the 80s, and there are episodes I look back on now and I just think, well, you know, that's that's pretty, the series is giving a pretty poor account of itself, sad mm. to say. But I didn't think that at the time, you know, because I was 10 and yes. uh, I was just happy to see Doctor Who on screen. Then inevitably, there have been ups and downs. Favorite episodes, less favorite episodes. Sometimes my views are more or less in line with the fan consensus. Sometimes I'm an outlier. You know, all, all this is just perfectly normal. But I don't remember just losing faith in the series the way mm. I have recently. And it's, I'm kind of grieving yeah. for a, a series that used to be able to do anything and now seems incapable of anything resembling a story. Well, I just think back to, I mean, the ones that I remember the most of New Who, and it shows a lot about me, are the Christopher Eccleston episodes. Weirdly enough, for some reason, they're the ones that are kind of like burnt into my brain because that was when I first started watching alongside Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast when it all came back and everyone was really excited. But you think about Dalek, and we were talking earlier about do you need big universe-ending things? Do you just have one one Dalek, the threat of one mm. Dalek potentially coming back to life? And and when Rose touches it and it uses her DNA to regenerate 
and like there's just the massive threat that that sort of posed. Is- I'm going to tell yeah. you something now, which is which is sheer bragging on my part, but I am <laughs> very pleased about it. So I, I write these reviews every every week uh, and stick them up on my blog and post them to Twitter and Facebook. And sometimes people are uh, kind enough to pass comment on them. And some people take me to task on things and some people correct me on things I've got wrong. And some people just say how much they enjoy reading them. Uh, and uh, this morning I woke up to the fact that somebody had said that uh, he'd been enjoying reading my reviews greatly. Uh, and that was Robert Sherman. Oh. Who wrote Dalek. Oh, yes. wow. So, That's well amazing. Done to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, why isn't he writing more Doctor Who? You might very well ask. I think he's written some, he's written some big finishes and stuff. Uh, okay. But yeah, no, he's not been asked to write back for the series, which I think is a huge shame because, yeah, Dalek for me was the moment when the whole series came into focus for me. Mm. I, was, I was pretty excited about the fact that the Doctor had brought Rose back a year late. Yes, that uh, I was thought that fun. was incredibly exciting. Is that oh oh this matters? Oh these are people. These aren't just adventures. But Dalek, I think, is the moment when the series found a kind of confidence and a kind of this is what twenty first century Doctor Who is, and this is how we're going to do it. And it's a magnificent episode. They weren't sure they were going to be able to get the Daleks. There was lots of negotiations. They were in, they were out, they were in, they were out because they're controlled by the Terry Nation estate. And yes. uh, Rob Shearman says that one of his drafts was entitled Absence of the Daleks. Oh, wow. <laughs> Could they even still use the name? No, and no, no. That was an in-joke. It would oh, have been right. the... Um, Russell Davis came up with a replacement, which was those things from... The oh, from the season the three. Yeah, yes. yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, I know, yeah. Those spheres with children inside them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think, and you had like the silly episodes, like the with the Raxacorocophalopatorias, you know, being farty demon monsters. But again, that's sort of the childlike children thing. And then and you yes. have Boomtown, where you ask the question, what's it like to be an alien monster living in a human skin suit mm. yes. on your own in Wales? Yes, yes. And, ma- and makes it make sense. Yeah, that's right. And give it consequences, but also give it like a fresh start when they take the egg back to the planet and hope she has a second, a better life second time around kind of thing. They did interesting things and, and you know, Rose, we're, we're in Dalek, you know, we, for people like me who didn't have the huge backstory of the Daleks, apart from knowing that they say exterminate and they kill everyone, it was an introduction into what is it like to meet this character, meet this enemy if you have absolutely no context for what they are and you've got a doctor not really wanting to explain all of his backstory straight away. So I'm very glad that he knows who you are and hopefully both of you <laughs> get to write for Russell T Davies. That's what I'll be campaigning for. Oh, that would be lovely. With my, I think there's a few a few people in the queue ahead of me and uh, sure. there, are people, there are people I would push ahead of me in that queue given the option. <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> Well, John Dorney uh, as well from the Best Pick podcast, as you John mentioned. John Dorney, 100%. He was written uh, uh, literally hundreds of Doctor Who stories for Big Finish. Uh, uh, some of the ones I've heard have been truly exceptional. I would, in a heartbeat, push him ahead of me in the queue. But uh, he, he absolutely I, should be writing for the television series, and it's a crime that he isn't. And the thing is, is that he loves it, clearly, like yeah. you do. You know, you're invested. But both of you have such a good storytelling. I mean, one of the things about listening to Best Pick Pod is how you're able to point out narrative things that I just would never even think of and go, oh, that's the mechanic of how that works or that's why that's there or that's why in a storytelling perspective that's there. It's the BBC. Surely it has some resources. Why? I, I don't know why. Maybe it's they don't want super fans. But Chris Chibnall is a super fan or was. I Yeah, I don't get it. 
Yeah, I mean, they had yeah, I, such huge success with first Russell T. Davis and then Stephen Moffat by taking a super fan and giving them complete mm. creative control over the series. And I, again, I don't know if I entirely trust Chris Chibnall about this because the first series that he produced had almost nothing from Doctor Who's past at all. And that seemed to be a very clear statement of intent. And he said he, he never read any reviews of any series that he'd done. But some people were sort of saying, well, why are we turning our back on 50 plus years of Doctor Who history? Uh, so as I think I put it at the time, when it came to the second series that he was stewarding, he pulled the lever so far in the other direction that it almost snapped off in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> but now he's just completely disappeared down that rabbit hole. And he has said now, oh, my timeless child idea was part of my very first pitch to the BBC. Oh, and by the way, I said I'd only do three years. I don't know if either of those things is true. They yeah, don't seem it's... likely to be true, looking at what the transmitted episodes turned out like. But Yeah, it's very convenient to go, no, 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 this is all part of my plan. I only wanted to be a one-term president. I've done everything. <laughs> <laughs> I've done everything I need to achieve. Speaking of another redhead who came in and ruined everything. Oh, um, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have any predictions of next week? Like, are we 100% confident it's going to end on a cliffhanger and we'll go to the specials? Are we 98% confident? <laughs> I think I would say I'm sort of 70-30 that it will end with something which feels like a resolution and <laughs> then probably a completely unrelated cliffhanger. Uh, so I think we'll get that sort of everyone troops back into the TARDIS or says goodbye, everyone's fine, and we forget about all the stuff we didn't deal with. We forget about the Centaurans have been in Russia since the 1700s. <laughs> yeah. We forget about every single human on Earth has a special dog friend that looks yeah. after them and only them. <laughs> we forget about the fact that the universe was going to end. We just do, like ignore that stuff because the right, the right bad guy got turned to dust at the right moment. That's my guess. Also, quick question about the Lapari, because we haven't even touched on Carvanesta and Bell in this. Uh, but he, you know, they had one ship fly loose of the shield, and then they had to go. He had to go and find the other ship, which of course was was Bell's ship, to plug the hole. But if Bell had taken that from some, wouldn't the gap have been there from the start? I guess it was a spare ship. Okay. So what the yep. human responsible for, or the human connected to it had died. And so he could I, also. I mean, clear. If, luckily, if... luckily humans don't, don't uh, die and don't get born terribly often. I mean, it happens like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> once a week or so. Mm. Uh, so it's relatively easy to bring in new ships, train up new Lipari and so on. Uh, it's not a, a fearsomely complicated logistical exercise that. <laughs> The script desperately doesn't want us to think about despite having introduced the idea when nothing like... This is the thing that's driving me crazy about this whole series. These ideas which are far, far too big for the story that, that is actually being told. Yeah. Yes. And um, I, it might have been I read it on your blog, Tom, but like why couldn't the Car the Carvanista or the Lapari have a ship that each one takes a million people or, <laughs> yes. you know, each one takes a thousand people? <laughs> And also, if they've got because seven... they have to interlock her in a shield around the Earth, Natalie. But I mean, wouldn't that be way bigger than the actual Earth? Like, it's, you're talking seven billion, and the yes. crafts are all. How big are these craft? Are they literally the size of jigsaw pieces? Well, I mean, I look. And my how are people on Earth reacting to the fact that seven billion was... ships are encircling so... the Earth and blotting out the sun? Yeah. So we saw. Um, was that Kate? She went home and opened her door, and it blew up. And she went, mm -hmm. "I've got to go dark." Was that at night time because there's no sun because the of the Isn't shield that in effect? 2017 still? 
Oh. No, that's in 2021. Oh. Okay. I think, so, unless, I'm, unless I'm misunderstanding what was going on there. But then you've got Highly Doc possible. Cotton. You've got Doc Cotton in the office telling, oh, no, but that was 20. No, when he's talking to the Sontarans, it seems to be light in his office. Maybe that's just, maybe I'm reading into it. Is it dark outside? Is the shield blocking you've, out the sun? You're putting more thought in than the people who made the show. <laughs> want to know if the sun is being blocked out to you because that has consequences for farming yes, yes it does and yeah. and also Stu, everyone's going to get seasonal affective disorder from not getting enough sunlight are you saying that the events of these episodes will make everyone sad natalie <laughs> because i think you're right yeah people won't be terrified at not knowing what's going on they're just going to be a bit sad because they're not getting mm. enough vitamin d it's certainly making me sad um <laughs> but uh just on just on predictions, I do have one that I desperately, desperately hope isn't true, but it's be, it's rapidly becoming clear that this is where the episode is heading because the Doctor says in this episode, uh, she's talking to uh, Tech Taeun about being found outside a portal and that, you know, she, she didn't know what, you know, Tech Taeun just assumed that she'd been left there. Maybe she was waiting to go through there. You know, who knew? We are definitely getting, uh, maybe not ne- this coming this next episode but definitely before Jodie Whittaker regenerates we're getting the closing part of that loop and it's going to be like Belle and Vinda are the doctor's parents and they get separated from her yeah that's definitely going to happen and it sucks (laughs) and I hate it (laughs) and also it kind of rewires a bit of the whole timeless child thing too it's like oh no she was found here and then doctor's like well you didn't you don't know that I was found there (laughs) you just assumed yeah you don't know what I think. You don't know what I was. You don't. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing I'm losing the ability to enunciate and I'm regressing to a childlike state. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I kind of think that if it was a Christmas episode, I would definitely say the family thing will be unveiled as part of the Christmas episode because, like, Christmas is a time for family and bullshit. Sure. But it's not because we don't do Christmas episodes now for some reason. No, and haven't we, for some time. Well, maybe they tapped out of all the good Christmas stories, but I don't know. Whatever. They should do a Scrooge, like a Christmas Carol Doctor, or has that been done already? They, they, they it's did. It's been done. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with Matt Smith oh, and yeah. uh, Catherine Jenkinson and Michael Gambon. Oh, In what yeah. I, I, I would. Was that the one with say- the sharks? The, yeah, the with, the, with the, yes. the floating sharks yeah, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I, I really like that episode. I think it's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. I remember enjoying it, I think. I just forgot about it. <laughs> Trial of a Time Lord was influenced by Christmas Carol as well. It's meant to be the Doctor's past, present and future. Ah. Oh, okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Ah. Uh, so with New Year's, I'm guessing that, yes, it probably will still happen, but I don't know how. I, I really... Well, there's three. I mean, this is the thing. There's three specials next year. So there's there's the New Year's special and then two more, at least one of which is the BBC Centenary special. Yeah. In which I think that's the one that is the regeneration episode. Oh, so this is BBC Centenary, not Doctor Who 60th. Not Doctor Who 60th. That's, that's the following that's year, the following which is year. Russell T Davies has to have a series of Doctor Who and then write and then do the, immediately do the 60th anniversary special. Um, yes. If anyone's up to the task, he is, but it's, it's a hell yeah. of an ask. I wonder if that's, how do you reckon that went, Tom? Tom, you're in showbiz. <laughs> you, you, you know the goss. How would that have gone down? Would he have put his hand up and gone, hey, I want to come back? Or would I someone genuinely don't know. I've, yeah. I've asked a couple of people who, who might have known and either they don't know or they're not saying. Mm. Uh, it's, it's certainly possible that he's gone, this is dreadful. I have to stop it. I have to save it. 
I suspect it's connected with the fact that for the first time, Doctor Who's going to be made by an independent production company. Mm. It's always been an in-house BBC production, but from 2023 onwards, it's going to be made by Russell T. Davis and Julie Gardner's Bad Wolf production company. And so it may simply be about consolidating power. Wow. It, may be about, <laughs> it may be about giving that production company a kind of artificial boost so that Russell can do other things which he's interested in doing. But he clearly doesn't need Doctor Who anymore. Not only did he make an enormous success of it first time round, but he's gone, if anything, from strength to strength. You know, mm. uh, it's a Sin was extraordinary. I actually I think that a very English scandal yet. is the best thing he's done, but It's a Sin is phenomenal. And I'm slightly I'm slightly alone in in very slightly preferring a very English scandal. Oh, is that if you haven't watched It's a Hugh Sin, Grant? you absolutely have Yes, exactly. If you haven't watched It's a Sin, Natalie, you absolutely have to. Yeah, it's on my list. It, I've only heard glowing things and it looks fantastic. So he doesn't need to come back to Doctor Who. Doctor Who needs him. And so then the, the question is, how much does he care? The reality is there are, there are plenty of other people who, who could have done the job. There are plenty of people who've written excellent scripts uh, and have showrunning experience who could have taken it over. And one of the reasons it died in the 80s is because the producer was keen to move on and the BBC couldn't find anyone to replace him. So they kept saying, well, you can quit if you like, but if you quit, the show dies with you. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> yes. To leave someone, oh gosh, punching yeah, on. John first thought of moving on from the show in 1983. He was still producing it in 1989. Oh, mm. wow. Oh, goodness. What became a, what this a, albatross. But what a double-edged sword to be doing something as, I guess, well, maybe it wasn't so fun back then, but to so many people it would be such a dream gig and then you'd be sitting there thinking, oh, so many people, it's their show. I, I can't be the one to let it die after yeah. X amount of years. Yeah. Oh, crazy. Um, yeah, well, I'm certainly very interested to see how he will go for a second time around. Has anything like this happened before? Has there been a... The nearest sure. I can think is, again, going back to John Nathan Turner. So this was his first producing gig. He'd sort of worked his way up. Uh, he'd done various jobs at the BBC in more kind of administrative capacities. And usually for a producer, he wasn't an experienced writer or director. And so they got an old producer, Barry Letts, to be executive producer and kind of look over his shoulder and make sure everything was going okay for his first season. That's the nearest I can think of to anything like this happening. If you want to kind of look in a different part of the world and a different genre altogether, you can imagine, you can think of Lord Michaels coming back to Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's right, because he left, didn't he? And then it was... Yeah. It was, it's... yeah, wi widely thought to go downhill. Yes. Uh, and then he came back and saved it. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not completely unprecedented. I think maybe... Did Phil Redmond come back to either Brookside or Grange Hill? I didn't. I wasn't you're watching talking Grange Hill. I never watched Brookside. Yeah. You're talking about soaps that Australians have no <laughs> reference point to. <laughs> uh, is no, this, is like very, very, this is very, very unusual. Yes, that's what I thought. I couldn't believe it. And that's what made me. My campaign, Tom, is to get Paul McGann back and just do like a TV series with the Eighth Doctor. Mm. Um, well, it might happen be because people are fun. talking about the fact that because they have this production company, the last time RTD was in charge of Doctor Who, he just, it was like spin off, spin off, spin off. Let's get as many things as we can. And he's been telling everyone who'll listen that he wants to make like a, you know, in, in, in a good way, I guess, like, like he wants to make Doctor Who should be looking at like the Marvel universe or like, you know, modern streaming shows that, you know, can generate like different show ideas like so mm. it shouldn't just be doctor who 
There should be other things, you know. So maybe we will get a whole series with the Eighth Doctor. Maybe we'll get a whole series with the Joe Martin Doctor. Who knows? Maybe they'll finally do Rose Tyler Earth Defense. Sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wasn't that the whole spin-off plan? That was going to be a thing. Yeah. Well, Billy the show's Jack in a very different back. state now, and television's in a very different state. When mm. when he brought mm. it back, his chief influence was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. And that was what really? was seen as, yeah, a, a gang of characters who have banter, who have basically individual standalone stories, but there are connecting threads that it builds to a big bad at the end of the series. Yeah. That was that was the model. And that had never been done on Doctor Who before. But w- the, the world of entertainment is in a totally different place now than it was in 2004, 2005. And yeah, I think uh, things like Marvel and the way in which there are Marvel movies and television series and webisodes and so on, all of which interact and build the story. That's what people are excited about now. Yeah, and your Wonder Visions and yeah, Winter Soldiers and yeah, all that stuff where you can sit down and enjoy a six-episode TV show. But again, it, it works because they are they're good stories with characters that we yeah. like who are genuinely affected and altered by the experiences that they have. Now, Wonder Vision, for all its zaniness, is about grief, yes, mm. and loss. Yeah, and, and you know, people flying through the sky hurling magic pixel bolts of purple light yeah. at each other, but. <laughs> That's not well, what you retain at the end of it. That's just the the sugar rush. We have gabbed, uh, gabbed. We have gabbed on with Tom for too long, and he needs to go. We need to go. Stu needs to sleep. I need to stay up too late and do weird stuff. Thank you to all my patrons. Patreon.com/slash/girlclumsy. I love you. Bless you. If you are in Brisbane, please come and see Die Hard the movie, the play. Google it. It's at the Brisbane Powerhouse from the twelfth to the twenty third of December. It's really good. It's really fun. It's going to be great Christmas fun times. Please come along. If you want to call in, I am at Girl Clumsy on Twitter. Stu is at Disco Stew, and Tom is at Tom Selinski. Very plain, very simple. Selinski with a Y. And that's all, I think, in terms of credits. Thank you to everyone for listening. We will see you next time for the final episode of The Flips. Until then, bye fam! Bye fam! Cheerio! Bye!